uh, to rule and reign. And then, in addition to this, this first voice, there's a second voice heard from heaven. And that second voice is calling God's people to come out of Babylon. And um, that's where we ended last week with this call from God for God's people to come out. Come out, he says there in verse 8, so that they can be um, spared from sharing in the sins of Babylon and also in receiving her plagues, meaning the judgments. And when we began this chapter, I pointed out that there are four separate voices heard in this chapter, and each voice is connected to that coming future judgment. Of Babylon and of its final destruction that we read about. Now, as we continue on, we're going to remind you that chapter 18, the verses that we have read, studied through, and the verses that we're going to study through and read about today, they're connected to the events that we read and studied through in chapter 17 and what we will read and study through coming up in chapter 19. They're all connected together. And in total, these three chapters, chapter 17, 18 and 19, they give us a detailed account of how the Lamb of God will bring a complete end to Satan's kingdom. In doing so, chapter 17 tells about the end, remember, the end of all the false religious systems in the world, and of all its harlotries and spiritual adulteries that are committed against God within these false religions. Then, in chapter 18, here, we are told about the fall of Babylon, which again is the capital city of the Antichrist during the tribulation period. And, and along with the fall of Babylon, more importantly, what we want to see as we continue to study through today is that it also means the end of that political and economical system that, that is part of Satan's kingdom at that time. And, and that's significant because those things the economic and the political system of Babylon are nothing more than the temporal things of life that men at that time will defer their hope to and put their trust in. Sounds familiar perhaps to a lot of what we see going on today. Now, as we move into chapter 19, finally we're going to see in this last section, um, man, this is a cool chapter because it's the prophetic record of Jesus' second return to the earth. And you study through the Old Testament, you study through the New Testament, and over and over and over again, we see that Christ will come to the earth two times. We know that he's come once in fulfillment of Scripture, and according to the prophets, as the, the, the uh, baby born the, to, to the Virgin Mary, who came to be a sacrifice for our sins upon the cross, offering up his life, but also rising again three days later from that grave. And he's often referred to by that in, that, in that way, as the Lamb of God. But in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, speaks of that second coming of Christ. A second coming of Christ, a return in where he will come, no longer as the Lamb of God, but as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords, to rule and reign upon the earth in all power and authority. But before we look at that, we need to finish chapter 18. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to pick back up in verse 9. And as we begin this morning in verse 9, we read of the remaining voices accounted in this chapter. Two we've studied through, two are still remaining. And in these chapters is the voice of the inhabitants of the earth who mourn the destruction of Babylon 
And then we read the contrasting voice of, uh, of God's people. It's more than that, but it's, it's really the contrasting voice of God's people who are commanded or called to rejoice over the fall of Babylon, which is being predicted in this chapter. In verse 9, chapter 18, we read, and it says, The kings of the earth, who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her, meaning Babylon, says that they will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. Standing at a distance for fear of torment, saying, Last, last, the great city of Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. The merchants, verse 11, of the earth, they too will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchants of gold, merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and incense, fragrant oil, and frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, and meat, cattle, sheep, horses, and chariots, and bodies of and bodies and souls of men. Verse 14, the fruit of your soul longed for has gone from you. Again, this is God's judgment upon her. And all the things which are rich and splendid has gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. Then, verse 15, the merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great riches came to them. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by sail, or who all, all who traveled by ship, sailors, and many as trained on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, Who is like this great city? And so they threw the dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Let's pray. Father, it's obvious from this text that there's going to be great mourning in this day, that there are going to be men who are grieving the loss of Babylon and all that she had promised and offered. And, and Lord, we see even more so in this text that, that, that this mourning, this grieving, is really a, 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 attached to a state of hopelessness, wherein these men, God, we see at this time truly that they have put their hope in something other than you, and it's failed them. And God, we all can understand that. We all, at times, Lord, have worshipped and served false idols, given our love, our hope, and our trust to something or someone other than you. And God, when it's failed us, we felt as if there was no hope. But we're grateful, God, that you've shown us a better way, that you have given us something better to put our faith and our hope in. And it is in you and your faithfulness and in, and in who you are as, as God, as Savior, as Father, as friend. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us again to see this morning that even when all things seem lost here in this life, that, that is not true. That we have something greater in you. Father, fill our hearts with hope this morning with that truth. Lord, if there's anyone here who's suffering loss, who's grieving, who's hurting, help them, Lord, to see that you are more than enough. More than enough for their grief. More than enough for their loss. That you're worthy to 
be trusted. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now as we read through these first verses, it's apparent that the voices recorded here, as we've seen, is, is really an outpouring of grief. I mean, over and over and over again. And I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who's experienced deep grief, a loss of a child, a loss of a parent, or, or a loved one, something dear or someone dear to them. But when I, when I think about that, I go, man, that's exactly what's going on here. These guys are wailing. They're throwing dust upon their head, and all because of a city that's been destroyed. And the inhabitants of the earth are grieving in such, this, in such a laborious way over the destruction of Babylon. And these voices that we read about here are the third that John has heard. And they are mourning. Here's the key. They are mourning. They are the mournings of wicked men who love wicked things. In fact, in this section, we see that these mourners are really divided into two groups. It's one voice that's being recorded, but it's two groups of people, two groups of mourners who we see in these verses. And in, in, in verses 9 through 10, first there are the kings of the earth. And then in verses 11 through 19, there are the merchants of the earth. And both, we're told, as we begin to read this section, both have committed fornication. And that wasn't, of course, a literal fornication. It's a spiritual fornication. It's an adultery against God because of their association, involvement, and commitment, and love for these evil things that are tied to the city of Babylon. Committed fornication with Babylon, as I said, which is a, a reference not only to the, to the spiritual adultery that, that they've committed, but more so it shows us that they've entered into this relationship by rejecting the one true God and going after false idols. And in this case, their idolatry, as I, as I already mentioned in last week's study, is tied to this materialism. It's tied to the covetousness. I mean, everything that they say is, whoa, everything that was good, all the precious things that she had to offer, we're not going to get them anymore. We're not going to become rich off them anymore. It's tied to this materialism, the covetousness, and their greed. And in light of this, we see that those who mourn the destruction of Babylon, they have literally sold their souls for wealth. They've sold their souls for the temporary pleasures of this life. And sadly, they are an example of the words of Jesus given to us in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 37, where Jesus said, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. And in light of that, Jesus goes on, he says, For what will it profit a man? What does it profit us if we gain the whole world and lose our own soul? And Jesus asks the second question in verse 37. He says, Or what is it that a man will give in exchange for his soul? Now, if you were to ask a person that, they would probably really, if anybody who had some common sense, that understood that there was eternity and these things were real, they'd probably go, nothing. There's nothing in this life that I could give in exchange for my soul that's valuable, that's precious. But here we read about it and we see it taking place around us every day as men reject God, reject, reject His ways and His will for their lives, thinking that they know what's best, thinking that they want to be their own God. And in light of this, it's important to notice that with the destruction of Babylon, 
And with the fall of this economic system that they worship, which she, Babylon, provides, we see that everything that the inhabitants of the earth have put their trust into will have failed them. In doing so, they're left without hope. And I can relate to this. I can relate to this because I remember distinctly what it feels like to be without hope. Before I came to Christ, I remember those times when I would lay there all alone after the fun was over, after the party was over, left to myself, left to my situation, left to my, my wretchedness and the, and the despair, and everything would come upon me. And that hopelessness would be so thick upon me that it would be suffocating. Fear would come over. Depression would settle in. And life would feel like it wasn't worth living. And that's exactly how these people are at this time. And so too is anyone who does not put their trust in Jesus Christ. And sadly, the same thing is happening to lots of people today who turn to put their trust and their hope in something or someone other than God. Things like a political leader or a candidate. Things like an education. People put their trust in their education. They put their trust or hope in bank accounts or retirement accounts or even in their health or life insurance policies. But the fact of the matter is, even though these things can serve us well in this life, they can and often do become a false idol when a person puts their hope and their trust in these things rather than in God. And this becomes very evident by the despair and the hopelessness that is expressed when one of these things fails. When they fail to provide for us in the way that we had hoped that it would. You see, the bottom line is, is God is, is the only one who is able to completely care for all of our needs. And he's a jealous God, and he will not share our love, our attentions, our affections with anything. He won't allow for us. He will allow for these things to fall, fail. He'll come in and destroy these false idols in our lives. And ultimately, at the end, at the end of all things, God's going to make it real apparent that the only thing that endures, the only thing that's worth putting your trust and hope in is Him. God's the only one who can care for our needs. He's the only one that can perfectly protect us. And He's the only one that can satisfy every one of our heart's desires. And for these reasons, God is the only one who is worthy of our hope. He's the only one who is deserving of our faith. Nevertheless, I think we can all relate to this weeping. We can all relate to this wailing that we read about here, which is expressed and spoken of clearly in verse 15, because we too have been failed by the things of this life, right? And it hurts when you're let down, when you're failed, when you're betrayed by the things of this life, things that we put our trust in. And when we are surrounded by others who are suffering loss, we know that it's because they've done the same thing. And for many years of my life, as I said already, I've placed my faith and my hope in lots of things. You know, the biggest idol that I served was myself. I put my faith and my hope in myself. I, I did put it in others, and I put it in the, in the things of this life, and as a result, despair and hopelessness was always the result. 
And trust me, I, I mean, many of you guys did things that I didn't do, but I tried many different things. And in doing so, as I tried them, I was like putting my faith, putting my hope, putting my trust, thinking that this might be the thing that would satisfy the desires of my heart. This might be the thing that would prove faithful in the promises that it's made to me. But it wasn't until I finally put my faith in God that the hopelessness was finally taken away. And it was taken away, not because I stopped experiencing letdowns, just so you know. Not because I, I stopped having problems in this life, but because my faith and trust in God is bigger than the problems that I face. And greater than the things that still continually let me down. Furthermore, my hopelessness was taken away because I got better vision. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ is like having LASIK surgery. It's better, actually. My, my vision got better as a result of my faith and trust in God. As because now my vision extends beyond the temporal things of this life. The temporal things of this life which are passing away. And because of my faith in God, my trust in God, my hope in God, my vision now extends into the eternal where the hope that I have does not fade. And furthermore, it's the place where glory is waiting for me. As we read on in verse 20, it says, Rejoice, this command, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city of Babylon shall be thrown down and shall be found no more. The sound of the harpists, musicians, flutes, trumpets shall not be heard anymore. No craftsman or any crafts shall be found in you anymore. The sound of the millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. And the light of the lamp shall not shine anymore, anymore, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and all, and all who were slain upon the earth. In other words, in these verses we're told that not only is there going to be a destruction, this is going to be a place where there will no longer be any happiness. No reason to celebrate. And as we look at verse 20, we see the fourth voice. We see that it's the it's, it's God that in this fourth voice that God's people are being instructed to rejoice over the destruction of this evil city. And in light of this, it's worth pointing out that the men of the earth, those who are against God never have the same viewpoint as God's people. Let me say that again. It's important to note here, and this should be reflected in our own lives as well, is that those who are against God never have the same point of view as God's people. Remember back in Revelation chapter 12, when Satan was finally cast out of heaven, and the record of that was given to us, it says that all of heaven rejoiced over it. It also tells us that the earth mourned. Those of the earth mourned. And now that Babylon has been destroyed, we again see a command given, and the following of that with heaven rejoicing while the earth laments. And I point this out because the main reason for why God's people are called to rejoice at this time 
is because, if you notice in the verses, it's because God's righteous judgment is bringing justice. And truthfully, if you think about it, that's what believer and really unbelievers are, are looking for even today. So many unbelievers in the world that refuse to give their lives to Christ because they have this excuse, this misunderstanding that, that God's not a just God. If God was a loving God, if God was a good God, if God was a just God, then how could he allow for all of these things to go on? And because of this, I can't serve that kind of God. They understand that God's long-suffering, that God's gracious, that he's merciful, and that he's holding back what we're reading here for a time so that they, too, might be saved. But there is coming a time when God will judge, when justice will prevail. And this is the reason for why these people are called to rejoice. Because God's judgment is bringing justice. And the fact that God's justice is perfect, each one of us who have received God's grace, each one of us who have been partakers of God's forgiveness, you know, we should be drawn to the cross. We should remember the cross and be grateful for the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. Because the truth of the matter is, is without Jesus' sacrifice, none of us would escape God's judgment. Considering we're all guilty, considering we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve justice. The justice of God. But the judgment we deserve, we know as we look at the cross, we know that it was poured out upon Jesus. And in doing so, the justice and judgment that we deserve was executed, but it was executed by God upon his son Jesus <coughs> for our behalf. And now through our faith, through our hope, through our trust, we've been saved from these final and eternal judgments that are going to come. In light of this, I want to remind us that God's desire, hear this, please, as we move on. Remember, God's desire is to save anyone from the judgment that is coming. But they make no mistake in thinking that God who is long-suffering is somehow going to ignore those who reject the way of salvation. The way that he has provided for them to escape this judgment. And in chapter 19, we see clearly as we read on that there is coming a day when Jesus will return, a day when he'll come to return to fight against, to make war against those who have made this decision to oppose him and to continue in their sinful and rebellious ways instead of repenting. If you want to turn over to chapter 19, we're going to read here. But before we read there, keep your finger there. I want to read to you a parable that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, the first 14 verses of the chapter, it says to us, it says, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by a parable and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So the kingdom of heaven is likened to, or it's compared to, in this parable, to a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out <coughs> other servants, saying, Tell those who are 
invite. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, and they went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies and destroyed the murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find invite to the wedding. So, verse 19, or excuse me, so verse 10, those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both Bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with the guests. And when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So I said to him, Fred, how did you come here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to his servants, Find him. Hand and foot, take him out and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now as we look at chapter 19, keep that in your minds. Because as we look at chapter 19, we're going to read about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this parable <coughs> is a depiction of that. This parable is an illustration to teach us a lesson of what we're going to read about here in chapter 19, the second coming of Jesus Christ. In doing so, as we read through this chapter, we're going to see the time, we're being told of the time when Jesus is going to come to take a physical and literal control of the earth, and in doing so, evict those who are not for him. In light of this, we need to remember that God has permitted Satan to have control over the earth for a time. This time, as a matter of fact, you and I are living in right now. And there's a biblical evidence found of this in John chapter 12, where Jesus, we see there, was speaking to his disciples about his upcoming crucifixion upon the cross. And he, at that time, Jesus, with his own words, refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. But at that time, Jesus also said to his disciples that as a result of the work that he was going to do on the cross, that there would come a time when Satan would be cast out of this world once and for all. So when we consider Cain, Satan to be the, the current ruler of this world, we also remember that we need to remember that it was not always like this. Satan wasn't always the ruler of this world. In fact, when God created man, when he created Adam and Eve, we know that he gave them dominion over all the earth. What Satan now is in charge of was something that had been given to us by God. And God said, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, he said that God blessed Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over all the fish of the sea, over all the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. But what we know is that Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. And when they ate from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that gift, that dominion that mankind had been given 
to rule and take dominion over all the earth, it was lost. And that's why Satan is called the thief. Because he came in and stole what had been given to us. He took control. Nevertheless, Satan's time to rule over the earth is limited. That's what chapter 19 is about. And that should fill your heart with joy this morning because you know that this evil and corrupt world that we live in, the satanic influence that is under, there is coming a day when it's going to be done. And Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, is coming back to redeem the earth and to reign upon it. And in Philippians chapter 2, it tells us this saying that Jesus humbled himself and that he willingly gave himself as a payment for all, for everything that had been lost to sin. And because of this, God, it says, has highly exalted Jesus and given him all power and all authority. All power and all authority. And as a result, it says in Philippians chapter 2 that there is coming a time when everything on the earth, everything that is under the earth, and everything that is above the earth will bow their knee to Jesus, who is the rightful Lord over all creation. So when Jesus returns, like we read up here in this chapter, he does so in order to set up his kingdom upon the earth to evict all the enemies of God. And in one final display of God's wrath, Jesus will destroy all the armies of the world who will rise up against him in order to resist the authority and the power that he brings. In chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, in verse 1, it says, After these things, John writes, he says, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they say, verse 3, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then verse 5, a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and the sounds of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him the glory, for the marriage of his Lamb has come, and he is, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. Clean and bright, but fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brother." who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, as we continue on in these first ten verses of this chapter, John is continuing to write about the voices that we were reading about at the end of chapter 18. The voices of those in heaven who are rejoicing and giving praise over the fall of Babylon and over this anticipation of Jesus' return to the earth. It's no different than a lot of the songs that we sing in praise and worship today that look forward to what the Lord's doing and the redemption that we've received. 
In fact, these praises and rejoicing is a response to the very command given back in chapter 18, verse 20. The command for heaven to rejoice. And in rejoicing, we see a repeated word here. It's the word alleluia. It's spoken in verse 1 first, and it's a Greek word. And this Greek word alleluia, it's used four times, only four times in the entire New Testament. I don't know if you were counting or not, but if you're going through this, you see that it's worth pointing out that all four instances of the word Alleluia is used in the entire New Testament, all here in chapter 19. No other place. The word Alleluia comes really from two Hebrew words. Ha, meaning praise, and El, meaning Jehovah. So Alleluia literally means praises to Jehovah. And as we look at our text and we consider this, we see that the praises of Jehovah God are really being sung at this point for three specific reasons. If you're keeping notes, that's what we're going to look at as we go through these first ten verses. These three reasons for why the praises are being sung to God. The first reason is given to us here in verse 2. If you look there, in verse 2 where it says, True and righteous are God's judgments, and they declare this, we see this being declared, as we read on, on the basis of the great harlot who corrupted the earth has been judged. So because the great harlot Babylon has been judged, the praise of God being righteous and being just is what's being sung. In other words, because sin, ultimately what we see here, is the fact that because God has judged evil, because God has poured his wrath upon sin, People rejoice. And once again, this is contrary to what we read in chapter 18. Specifically, God's people rejoice, and this is contrary to what we read in chapter 18, what we just went through, where we read about the kings and the merchants of the earth weeping and mourning over the destruction of Babylon. But again, listen, gotta keep this in mind, because this is where so many people are at today. If we don't have a right perspective, we come at them with a the wrong heart. This is what the wonderful thing about God's word does. It opens our eyes to the truth, but it softens our hearts to people. And when we see this in the right light, we come to understand some things. Because as we see this contrast between God's people rejoicing and the merchants and kings of the earth weeping, it points out the fact that Babylon, this city, it's going to be the source, if you remember, it's the source of all religious deception. The key word being deception. The source of all religious deception. Not only deception, but confusion, specifically during the last seven years of the earth, of this tribulation period. And so it's not really a surprise that we see many here mourning the destruction of something that is so inherently evil. Because they're deceived. Because they're confused. And this reminds us of the fact, should remind us of the fact that so many people today are also deceived. They're walking in darkness and they're calling good evil and evil good. And when we, we see that, we should have compassion. You know, I get angry when I see that over a million Syrian Christians have been murdered. I get angry when you see you know, the, the nation of Islam rising up and killing our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. I get, I get ticked. 
But I have to make sure that my heart stays soft because the truth of the matter is, is, is they're deceived, they're being lied to. And you and I have the truth. You and I have the truth. You see, in doing so, we who have been saved, we have been pulled out of the darkness and, and, and called, we walk now in the light. You and I were both all at one point also deceived by these false religious systems in the world. Whatever it was, it didn't have to have a name. It could have been the worship of self. That's really what it boils down to anyway. We were deceived. We were walking in darkness. And now we've been called to walk in the light. And as we walk in the light, what that means is that we need to let our light shine so that others who are still walking in darkness might be able to see the deception that they're being controlled by. In doing so, we need to remember that Babylon and the apostate religious systems in total that is represented by her have been around since the beginning of time. Satan's way of taking control of the earth was through deception, through trickery, through temptation. And it's continued on down through the ages. And through Satan's deceptions, many have been led astray. And through Satan's deceptions, we know that also many of God's, God's servants have been persecuted and put to death for standing up for what is good and true and right. The point is, listen, the point is, is when we confront darkness, when we stand as a light, and we expose the deceptions that many have been led astray by, we should expect that it's not always going to turn out the way that we would want the way that we would expect. In fact, we should expect that when we do this, that we're going to suffer. There's going to be opposition. But here at the end of verse 2, we're told that God, if you look there, will avenge the blood of his servants by the destruction of Babylon. And everything that she represents, everything that she stands for. And the point is, is when a person gives their love, listen, this helps us to understand the times that we're living in today. Because when a person gives their love to anything or anyone other than God, it's their anti-way God of life that compels them and drives them to make others do what they want them to do. In other words, to agree with their evil ways. Is that not what's going on in our world today? Look at all these evil things where the world's calling good evil and, and evil good. That God clearly says, no, it's not good. And, and what do they want? They don't just want to have the permission to be free to do it on their own. They want you to what? Agree with them. To say that it's good too. And everything that we as Christians stand for and believe in as a result is hated. And we're seen as those who hate so it seems probable in light of the current situation that times that we're living in, it's very likely that very soon it will be a crime to be a Christian here in the United States of America, just like it is already on most of the places of the earth. So when a follower of God will not do what an anti-God person or an anti-God nation wants them to do, the result is going to be suffering. The result is going to be persecution. But these words in verse 2 here, these words in verse 2 that speak of God avenging the blood of his servants reminds us 
that the persecution of God's people does not go unseen. God knows. And when God avenges his saints, when that day finally comes, we're told that heaven rejoices. Not because of the judgments of themselves, not because of the judgments. They're not going, yeah, him, God. Notice that. That's not what we're reading here. They're, they're rejoicing, not because of the judgments, but because of who God is. Look at that. In other words, we too rejoice and we sing hallelujah over the fact that God is true and righteous. And, and what we see here is that God has revealed to us to be true and righteous by his holy judgments, by his justice. In verses 5 through 6, if you look there, it says, Then a voice came, came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, John says, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. In these verses, we see the second reason for why heaven will be rejoicing at this time. Second reason for why heaven will be rejoicing at this time, and it's simply put, is because God is reigning. God is on the throne. God is in charge. We don't have to worry about who our president's going to be. We don't have to worry about what other leaders in other nations are going to do. We don't have to worry about what our boss at our work is going to do because Jesus is on the throne. Truthfully, he's on the throne today, but there is coming a time when it's going to be literal and physical upon this earth. And when John heard this other hallelujah, he says it was a mighty noise. It's as if all the voices in heaven had joined together with one loud unison's voice uh, to give their praise to God. And this mention of God reigning is a reference to the earthly throne that Jesus will set up here on the earth. Now, the word omnipotent that's used there to describe God sitting upon his throne and reigning over all the earth, it means that all powerful is all authority. And, and this word is used as it points to the fact that God is about to conquer all the other thrones of the earth, as well as the kingdom of Satan. And this is what heaven's praising God for. But this upcoming event is an amazing thing because God in his sovereignty, when we look at where we're at now, we know that God in his sovereignty has and is at this very moment permitting evil men and evil angels to do their worst. Yet there is quickly coming a time when God's will will be done here on earth just as it is being done in heaven. And when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, remember this is one of the very things that he told us to pray for saying in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's going to answer that prayer. And that's what we read about here. And that's why heaven's rejoicing. And so when the Lord, who is omnipotent, returns, he will reign. And at that time, his will will be done. Not my will. Not your will. Not any other person's will. And certainly no longer Satan's will. So when we think about this and realize the ramification 
of Jesus, the all-powerful one, reigning here on earth, we can certainly understand why all of heaven, with one loud, thundering voice, will say, Alleluia, because truly this is a praise-worthy thing. Now, the final reason for why heaven is going to give their praise to God, it's shown to us in verse 7 through 10. I don't know if you noticed it as we were reading through it or not, but it's a pretty cool thing. And they're rejoicing and giving praise and singing hallelujah. It says, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. Speaking about us. The marriage of the Lamb has come. Just so you know, the phrase is come. It can also maybe even better be translated, and some of your translations may read this way. It says, it says has been completed in verse 7 has been completed. The marriage of the Lamb has been completed. In other words, both parties have stood before each other and said, I do. And the officiator has said, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And it points us to the fact that at the end of the seven years of tribulation, just before Jesus' return to the earth, his bride will become his wife. But it's interesting to note that this is not called the marriage feast of the King of Kings. If you read ahead, you should read ahead, but if you read ahead in chapter in verse 16, it says that Jesus, when he returns, he's his he has on his robe, that's his it's his priestly and kingly robe. And, and on his thigh it says, it's written, so Jesus likes tattoos, I guess. It says, uh, King of kings and Lord of lords. But this marriage feast is not called the marriage feast of the King of kings. It's not called the marriage feast of the Lord of lords. Rather, it's called the marriage feast of the Lamb. And it's interesting to read that in the context that we're looking at where you see Jesus coming back as the King of Kings and as the Lord of Lords. And it's interesting to know, but the reason why it's here is because this title, the Lamb, is the one title that God wants to be emphasized for all of eternity. Because it's in this title, it's by this title, it's through this title that God's great love for his bride, for his church, is revealed. And by this title, we're reminded of the precious price that Jesus paid to purchase us, to redeem us. One of the things that we need to remember as we talk about the marriage feast of the Lamb uh, uh, is that the marriage feast that we're speaking about needs to be looked through the lens of, of Judaism. In other words, this is culturally Jewish stuff that we're talking about. This is one of the reasons for why I previously read from after chapter 22 when we began chapter 19. In light of this, there's a few things about a Jewish wedding I want you to know that needs to be pointed out. There's some awesome correlation and connection here that we see being made. In light of this, as we look at it, the first thing I want to point out to you is that when a Jewish man desire to marry a woman. Guys, you remember that? When you when you met your wife, you're like, yep. She's one. 
You know, it's a little different in our culture, but in the Jewish culture, when a man desired to marry a woman, he would have to enter into a legal contract with her father. By the way, I'm for that. <laughs> and there needs to be a gun on the counter while you're doing it. Amen. <laughs> so when this, when if you were a Jewish man and you desired to, to marry this, this woman, this girl you were attracted to, you had to go to her father and you had to enter into a legal agreement with her father. The contract or this prenuptial agreement was called a ketubah. And it's Hebrew, it simply means a written thing. And the ketubah was to include, within this legal document, it was to include um, the provisions and conditions for the proposed marriage, such as the groom's written promise to support his future wife. This is the disclosure of the bride's dowry was put in this written document. And not only that, but the agreed-upon price that the groom was to pay for the father's daughter, for his future bride. That was in this ketubah. And so as we consider that, in light of the fact that you and I are the bride of Christ, we should, we should also see that we have a legal contract that betrothes us to Jesus Christ. You want to know what that is? It's called the New Covenant. That's our ketubah. And in this agreement, we see that Jesus has promised his love and care for us. And in this agreement is the price, the written down price, for what has to be paid for us. And we know that Jesus willingly paid for us to become his, become his bride. And in doing so, it was a great display of his love for us. And in Peter chapter 1, verses 18, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're reminded of this as it tells us that we have not been bought, we have not been purchased with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now after the ketubah had been agreed upon, the bride and the groom would be betrothed in a public ceremony. And this betrothal was called the condition. And it means literally set apart. And this would typically last about a year, and it was this time for the couple who were betrothed to one another to set themselves apart in order to make the necessary preparations for their marriage, for their lives together. And in light of this, it's important to note that the Jewish understanding of a betrothal is much stronger than our modern understanding of uh, engagement today. In fact, the condition was so binding that a couple would need a religious divorce in order to annul that contract that had been made. And this option was only available to the husband, as the wife had no say in Jewish culture in any divorce proceedings. So during the condition, or this time of betrothal, this time of setting apart, one of the groom's responsibilities was to go and build a dwelling place for him and his bride, his future wife. And this was done by adding rooms onto his father's house. But the groom was not the one to make the determination of when that building, uh, 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 the determination 
uh, of when the, the, the rooms that he's building would be ready and prepared in a satisfactory way. In fact, it was the father who would give the go-ahead for his son to go and retrieve his bride. Now during the, 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 the time of waiting, the bride was to keep herself busy. She was to keep herself pure. She was to prepare for that wedding day. And since the betrothal typically lasted about, about a year, the bride had an idea. She had an idea of when that groom, her groom, might be coming for her, but she did not know the exact day or hour. So she had to always be ready for the groom's return. She had to live expectantly so that she was prepared for his arrival. Likewise, you and I, the church, the bride of Christ, the betrothed bride of Christ, it tells us that we're waiting for our groom's return. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14 that he was going away to prepare a place for them. And where he was going, there he would come back and bring us to be with him and we would live together. But like the Jewish groom who would come unexpectedly, so does scripture tell us that Jesus will return at an unexpected time. And since we do not know the day or the hour of his return, we also are called to be living expectantly so that we are prepared for his return. Now the final step in the ancient Jewish wedding process, it was called the Nisan, and it means to carry. And it's, it, it, it's descriptive of how the groom would surprise his bride with his return, snatching her away and carrying her off to her new home. The period of the betrothal was a, a time of great anticipation as the bride waited for the arrival of her groom. And, 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 and since the time of arrival was a surprise, the bride and her bridal party had to always be ready. And if you remember, when we started chapter 18, I read from you in Matthew chapter 25, which spoke of this parable of, of, of how a groom, a Jewish groom, would come unexpectedly. And this one particular Jewish groom came, and it explained to us how five of the ten virgins who were waiting were ready, but five were not. Consequently, those we read in that parable who were not prepared, they were not taken to the wedding. So in light of this, so in light of this is we see Jesus comparing himself to a groom, to the groom that comes unexpectedly for his bride. He said, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 13, he said, watch. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And as the groom made his way to the bride's house, it was customary for one of the groom's party to go ahead of the bride and shout, Behold! The bridegroom comes. And this will be this will be followed by the sounding of the shofar, the, the, the ram's horn. And at the sounding of the shofar, the entire wedding processional would go through the streets of the city and march their way to the bride's new house. Now in closing, I want to point out the pinnacle of the celebration was the marriage supper. Right? I mean, you endure the ceremony when you go to a wedding because you hope there's good food to follow. 
especially if it's a Catholic wedding, which I've been to a few, where the full mass is a bomb. But the whole pinnacle, everything of this is all building, it's all leading up to the marriage feast. And in the marriage feast, in the Jewish marriage feast, there were seven days of food, seven days of music, seven days of dancing and celebration. And, and, and after the seven days of celebration, the husband was then free to bring his bride into their new home and to live together as husband and wife in the full covenant of marriage. And here, in Revelation chapter 19, in verses 7 through 9, this is what the heavens are glad. This is what the heavens are singing, hallelujah, praising Jehovah God for. And we need to understand that during the seven years of tribulation, when God's wrath was being poured out upon Babylon and upon the inhabitants of the earth, those who are anti-Christ, those who are anti-God, we, the betrothed bride of Christ, we're going to be eating, we're going to be dancing, we're going to be celebrating for seven years at the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is because Jesus will have come for us, just as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 reminds us of. And like a Jewish bridegroom, Jesus our groom, once our new dwelling place is finished, and once our Father has approved it, he will send the Son to come and get us. And with the sound of a trumpet, and the twinkling of an eye, we will be caught up together in the clouds with Jesus, where he will take us to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The worship team wants to come up. We're going to end with this. We're going to end with this but. Because what we read here in chapter 19 is at the end of the seven years, just prior to Jesus' second coming, when he will establish his throne here on earth, we, as verse 7 indicates, will no longer be the bride because we will have become the wife. But... Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And in Matthew chapter 22, it tells us that there are some who are not going to be found worthy Because they don't have the right garments. We're talking about the robes of righteousness that we've been clothed in. And we know that a bride, a chaste bride, a pure bride, wears the white garments to signify her purity that she's been cleansed. And this only comes through that new covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ. And you can only receive that robe of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And these truths, the fact that, that all of God's judgments are true and righteous, and the fact that Jesus is going to establish his throne here on this earth, and the fact that God's will will finally be done here as it is being done in heaven. And the fact that we who are the church are the betrothed bride of Christ, will become his wife, should cause us to fall down and worship Jesus this morning. Or if you've not been clothed in a robe of righteousness, it should cause you to tremble. Because the alternative, as we read here, is weeping and gnashing. And if you've been told or taught anything other than this, you've been deceived by the enemy. The Word of God clearly makes these 
truths known to us. And no person has any hope apart from Jesus Christ. And the things of this world that we turn to, to put our hope and our faith in, can only serve us at best for a time. We can't serve you in eternity. So this morning I would call out to each and every person here to be sure that you're clothed in the robe of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To put your trust in him, to believe in him, to accept him as your Lord and Savior, because there is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no man comes to the Father except for me. And Jesus paid the debt that we owed on the cross. Judgment was poured out. Justice was served so that we might be found righteous in him. And, and once you do that, God's grace and forgiveness is poured out upon your life. And you're just waiting for his son's return. I pray this morning that you too would be able to wait in hopeful expectation with us who have given our lives to Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this time this morning. I pray, God, that if there is anyone here this morning who has heard these words, God, who has not yet raised their hand and said, I will be your servant, I will follow after you, I will put my faith and trust in you, I pray, God, if there's someone here this morning who has never done that, that they would do that this morning. God, that they would have the assurance and the knowledge of knowing that when this life is over, that they have a life with you. That they can live, as Rob said, chosen, redeemed, predestined, forgiven. That they can look forward, Lord, to everything that you have with us. This morning, with your guys' eyes closed and your heads bowed, if that's you this morning, if you've heard this message, maybe even before, and you refuse to raise your hand. You refuse to submit your life to Christ because the other things in this world you put your hope or trust in seem better. I would encourage you this morning to take this opportunity to see that Jesus is your only hope, that there is no other way. And that you would accept that free gift. No matter what you've done, God says he's capable, able, and willing to you. And so this morning, I would like for you to raise your hand so that I can lead you in a prayer to receive Jesus as your Savior, to have your sins forgiven, and to have that promise of eternal life. If that's you this morning, just raise your hand where you're at. Just raise it up so I can see it, so I can pray with you. Is there anyone? Father, I thank you, God, again for this morning. We worship you, Lord. We rejoice our mutual salvation together, that we, your bride, we look forward to that day when we will be called um, your wife to be united with you forever.